0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at Um So just as a quick review of, of some things that we have talked about, especially last week, uh, obviously uh, the promises that are coming to the nation of Israel are all coming back to promises that were made very early on in Scripture. So if you've been reading your Bibles and you're you're paying attention in Genesis, basically all of the threads of the Old Testament are opened in Genesis. I mean, Genesis couldn't be a more important book for your reading of the Old Testament. And so God makes, uh, first of all, Adam and Eve, some promises where He says, when cursing the serpent, that there's going to be an offspring that comes it's going to crush the head of the serpent. Paul tells us later in the New Testament that offspring was Jesus, and he makes no apologies about that. He's talking about Jesus there. Um, and then later on, a few chapters later, he makes a promise to Abraham, and or then when he makes the promise, his name is Abram, but he promises him to make him a great nation, he promises to give his descendants land, and to bless those who bless him, and curse those who curse him. But what happens is the Old Testament draws to a close in the book of Malachi. We're left with kind of an open question as to when this is going to come about, the Old Testament closes with that last little promise that you know, Elijah's going to come along before the day of the Lord comes along, and, and I'll, I'll see you then. And that's pretty much it, and it just closes. And then the whole time that we're in right now, that we're kind of studying right now, is what we call the intertestamental period. It's the time between the testaments is what we're looking at. And it's, if you think about it, it's like 400 years of silence. So Malachi closes in whatever, 400 B.C. roughly, and Jesus doesn't come along till like what, 4 B.C., somewhere around there. So you're talking about 400 years where there's not a prophet at all in the land. And, and prophets are there to tell you about the event that's going on and what God thinks about that or how God is using that event. And maybe even to prepare you for an event that's about to come. They've got none of it, and they've had it for the last... 2,000 years nearly, at least 1,500 years, they've had a prophet come along, and Moses and various others. And so, this is a foreign concept for Israel as a nation. And you can imagine, Malachi closes, I've got Malachi's prophecy, and looking around, where are you? It doesn't seem seem to be there. Well, in about 334 B.C., uh, the Greek commander Alexander the Great comes to Jerusalem the high priest uh, Jadia or Jadua, maybe, or Jadua, maybe. Uh, let's go with that. It sounds kind of French, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> welcomes him and just kind of, kind of. Uh, maybe it's like a gut instinct or something like that. Kind of, but we know it's divine providence. But goes to Alexander and, and meets him at the gate and, and welcomes him and kind of puts on airs and shows him a bunch of different things and, and even opens the book of Daniel and shows him where we knew you were coming. Now, it doesn't say Alexander the Great in the book of Daniel. It gives some very, you know, kind of veiled references that we also, even in nowadays, understand to be the Greek Empire. Uh, But they tell Alexander, we knew you were coming. See, our scriptures testify to the fact that you're coming. Well, Alexander's pretty impressed by that. And so he grants the Jews in Judea the right to follow their own laws. He didn't do that for anybody else. But... God's providential wisdom and, and the way He works events in history uh, brings this about so that religion in the promised land is preserved. Okay. Now, when, as we go through this, I, I, there's a couple things that I want you to just kind of keep in mind of what I'm doing. I know some of the details that I'm going to get into may or you may or may not feel like that's very important. And Well, truth be told, maybe some of them aren't, okay? But what I'm trying to give to you are events in this time period that will eventually pay dividends in the New Testament for our New Testament reading, that will enrich our New Testament reading, and our understanding of the the topography of the times in first century Jerusalem when Jesus enters the fray. Because it will help you understand the way that some of the Pharisees and Sadducees are behaving and why. Some of the things that they're doing. And help us understand what Pharisees and Sadducees actually are. And it, it helps us kind of ke- build those categories. So, um, so I know some of the things, we may get lost in some of the details, because history can just be that way. You can get lost in some of the stuff, right? But the goal is really to enrich our reading of the New Testament. So that's first and foremost, we're trying to do that. Um, And second, what I want you to understand about history itself is that these are not just things that took place, decisions that people made. What I really want you to see is that this entire thing that we're studying, all of it, is is a giant chessboard. And all the pieces move at the discretion of the Creator. That's what I want you to see, is there's a sovereign hand at work. Somebody once cheesily said that history is his story. I think it's kind of cheesy, but whatever. It's a good picture, though, right? That, that is true, that it is something God is orchestrating and bringing about. And what's important to remember about that as I talked about last time is that this is 400 years that humans, Jews, feel like God is silent. But now we as Christians in 2023 AD are looking at these going, he was anything but silent. He is doing some things you just didn't know what he was doing. You didn't have a prophet around to interpret all the things. And I think in some ways that's uh, in a sense, where we are now is that God is moving in ways that you can't possibly even understand or fathom. And occasionally you get a glimpse of it and go, wow, that's amazing. But do you, you can't even begin to understand the 10 billion different things that happened in Tuscaloosa, maybe even on your block today, that you had no idea about, that are also pivotal to the plan that he's bringing about. So when we study history, what it helps us do is understand that maybe in my life, God is actually doing those things too. And that sometimes things are hard and and I don't understand all of those things, but he is connecting dots. And I have to trust that because I've seen him do it for thousands of years of study. So I think that's why history is helpful, at least from a Christian perspective. Okay, so... What, what's, what, I, what we want to transition into is we've set up Alexander the Great, and so you kind of understand what his goals were, or what he wanted to accomplish, and I'm going to reiterate some of those now. But um, that first one, we talked about this a little bit last time, was Hellenism. The word Hellenism is commonly used to describe uh, the civilization of the three centuries or so from the time of Alexander the Great on through basically that whole intertestamental period, where the Greek culture was felt both in the East and the West, the Greeks are bringing in an entirely different way of being. They are thinking. They are philosophers. Their art is above everyone else's artistic expression. Their, their um, buildings' uh, architecture is unparalleled. When people look at the things that they are producing, they are envious. Have you ever been to the White House? Have you ever seen seen it even just from a distance? How beautiful that house! I mean, it's, it's architecturally it just is gorgeous. Some of the buildings, especially the old ones like Supreme Court or the the uh, Capitol Building or whatever, they're just they're just ornate and they're beautiful structures. You know, they're just the architecture is just beautiful. So. When the Greek culture essentially drops down something like that kind of a building you know, in Athens and brings that to the rest of the world, everybody's going, We have nothing like this. I remember having some of our friends, some friends that I met that were in England, first world country, London, they were raised in London, come over here and they're staying over here for three months in California and, and they were like, Your way of living is so far beyond what I've ever experienced in my life. Your the the lifestyle that is lived in America, the, the niceties that you have in all of your buildings. You don't realize how, how lavish everything is here. And I remember them commenting on that over and over and over as they progressively gained weight because uh, they... <laughs> Welcome to America. <laughs> Which flavor of ice cream would you like? We've got three hundred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and one scoop is that big. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so essentially, you can think of Greek culture like that. They're bringing it in, and, it, and it's just felt across the world, and everybody wants to be like them. And that's Alexander's plan: is he wants to bring this to the rest of the world, and if, if he can make you culturally like us. You won't attack us. There was that big thing for a while of, like, if you got a McDonald's in your country, you won't attack, you won't attack America, right? And, and that's kind of the same similar idea that the Greek culture is being brought to the rest of the world. So it was the desire of Alexander to found a worldwide empire bound together in a unity of language, custom, and civilization. So you can kind of think like um, uh, America is similar to what America has done or what the English language has done, maybe, uh, is similar to what Alexander hoped to accomplish. He sort of was a forerunner for all of that. Well, Alexander is not going to be long for this world. 33 years old. So he accomplished a lot in 33 years. And does anybody know how he died? Does anybody know how he died? Don't say it if you do, but just raise your hand if you do. You know how he died. Okay, y'all have read. I I think y'all have read. Uh, I think you've done some homework before. 324 BC, Alexander is on a campaign, and he's uh, uh, there's every expectation that he is losing interest amongst his army, or his army is losing interest with Alexander, and they're ready for a new commander, and Alexander is losing his influence over his army, and the, the signs of collapse are imminent. But in spite of that, he actually doesn't die in battle. One night, he decides to have a party. And Alexander drinks tons and tons and tons of wine. And he lets out a yell and kills over from alcohol poisoning. What a waste, right? But just, it's sort of unsuspecting. You'd kind of figure that like somebody of his, I don't know, would die in battle or something like that. But nope, very anticlimactic death just has a party and dies from alcohol poisoning. took him a couple days to get there, but eventually he succumbed to death, drinking himself to death. And of course, as you can imagine, there's a little bit of a power struggle over the kingdom that he's leaving behind. And ultimately it's going to be split up between four, uh, four different uh, entities, uh, but two of them are going to be the most prominent and the two that we're concerned with. We're really not concerned with any of the others. Um, The two that ended up taking over are two, essentially, generals. uh, Seleucus um, is going to have command over Asia and Syria and kind of the north and the east. And Ptolemy, uh, you don't pronounce the P as far as I know. Maybe he did. I don't know. But it's been lost since then, and everybody just calls him Ptolemy now, uh, ruled Egypt and Palestine. So just to give you a map, Shannon, I know you like maps, so we got maps. All right. So, like I said, here are the other two over here, and you can see a little uh, key over here. Antagonids, or antagonids, I don't know how you pronounce that, is over here. Adelids is here. Don't worry about them, we're not concerned about them at all. The, uh, the Seleucids are here, in this area, and in control of, of Palestine and Egypt are the Ptolemies. So the Ptolemaic dynasty now takes control. So. Alexand- These are Greek, essentially Greek people, but it's the ge- essentially the generals, Alexander's generals, is whom the kingdom is divided up amongst. And uh, so the big ones that we're concerned with are the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And mostly right now is the Ptolemies. So both rulers, the Ptolemaic dynasty and the Seleucid dynasty, are both set on the same thing that Alexander was, which is to take Greek culture and spread it around the world and Hellenize all of the conquered peoples, and that includes the land of Jerusalem. Now, they have some religious freedom. Some of that is going to change a little bit over some years, but the main point being, they know that the biggest influence is going to be the Greek culture that's going to be brought in, and that's going to persuade anybody, essentially. So... That's uh, their their goal. So, in general, when the Ptolemies take over, they're remembered as as tolerant rulers. They seem to have followed a live and let live philosophy in their rule. As long as the Jews in Palestine paid their taxes, the Ptolemies mostly left them alone, even granting them some self-government and cultural and religious freedom. So, here begins what's the reason for tonight, and I think probably one of the more important things I told you we would get to uh, after last week, um, Ptolemy I takes over. He's, every, every one of the Ptolemies, they're all called Ptolemy, pretty much, uh, have a second name that people called them, a nickname, something like that. Soter is Ptolemy I. He takes captives from Jerusalem and wants them to populate Egypt. So he takes captives, Jews from Jerusalem, brings them down against their will into Egypt. And, but at the same time, they're not quite the slaves of old. It's not exactly like it was in the Exodus. They're brought down there and they're promised some freedom. They're promised some uh, pomp and circumstance, a little bit of luxury and things like that that they're going to get in Alexandria. Alexandria is the capital of Egypt at the time. And it's a thriving city, a booming metropolis. The Greeks are making sure of that. And so they're going to enjoy, essentially, life in the lap of luxury. Now, you can remember what we, what we came to when we left Babylon. When they came into this land, Jerusalem was nothing to write home about. So the slaves, while they are becoming slaves, that's not good, there's something of an upgrade in their accommodations that they're moving to, ironically. So, because of that, some of the people of the Jews went willingly. Some of them were slaves and taken, and some were like, that actually sounds better than Jerusalem. I think I'll, I'll go enjoy Alexandria too. And so they go down there and enjoy the good farmland and all of the different kinds of freedoms and things like that that are available to them in Alexandria. Okay, so point number one, just put in your mind, there are some Jewish slaves down in Egypt, okay? Point number one, hold that. Ptolemy's son... Ptolemy II, which is a great name, uh, comes along, and he goes by the name Philadelphus. And he's a... Did it not go? Oh, I thought it went. There it goes. All right, got it. Uh, Philadelphus is a book lover, and in Alexandria, I'm not sure if you've heard of the Library at Alexandria. Have you heard of the Library at Alexandria? Well, it's going to tragically undergo a big fire and burn everything in it so that we don't even have it now but back then it was a uh, not it wasn't Tuscaloosa public library all right this was this this collected all the all the works around the world this was the library in the world uh so the library at Alexandria uh was obviously massive had tons of works in it and the librarian a man by the name of Demetrius tells Philadelphus, who is a book lover, hey, these Jews that have come down here that are slaves, they have a book that they refer to as the law. And they've been reading this book for nigh on 2,000 years. So they've been reading for a long time, or at least 1,000 years. And so I think it would make a really good addition... To the library at Alexandria because it is such a famous and well-known book. I think we, we should get us a copy. Here's the problem, though. If we're going to put it in the library at Alexandria, it's written in Hebrew. Nobody would be able to read it. We're going to have to translate it into Greek first to put it in the library. So, Ptolemy II, again, he's a book lover, he goes, that sounds like a brilliant idea. I think we're going to do that. So, he wants to put together a bunch of men who are going to come down to Alexandria who speak Hebrew, they're going to take the Hebrew scriptures and they're going to translate them into Greek. That's going to be the mission. And so he puts out this notice, says that's what I'm looking for, high priest in Jerusalem. And wouldn't you know one of the Jewish men uh, around the time? yeah, one of the, the Jewish men around the time, a man by the name of I'm just going to make I'm going to go at some of these names alright but Aristius uses this opportunity to say alright we'll do that but you have a hundred thousand of our people enslaved why don't you let them go and we'll translate your scripture for you and he says alright sounds fair right okay so I'm sure it didn't all shake out just that cleanly, maybe. And I will also say this. We have one source for this story. We have one source. So, we can't cross-reference this. We can't check it with somebody else. We can't verify a lot of the details. There's a lot of things in it that some of it are like, oh, that sounds a little far-fetched, maybe. So, there's some qualifications. You can see that down at the bottom of page 2 there in your handout. This is the following account of the development of the Septuagint was from one source by a man named Aristius. He is writing to his brother, Philocrates, and which is a great name. I would love, if I had a fourth kid, I would love to name him Philocrates. Um, <laughs> and so some of the details in the account are, maybe we should call them improbable, Uh, Like, for instance, the men that are going to be gathered, which you will see. Let me just go ahead and get to that. Eleazar, the Jewish high priest, selects 72 men, six men from each of Israel's 12 tribes, fluent in Greek and Hebrew, and arranged for their travel to Alexandria. Now, the improbable part of that is 10 of the 12 tribes are scattered. So how did he get six from the 10 of those tribes? I don't know. Doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Maybe it did. And maybe there's some things we don't know. It's entirely possible. But you should just know that, you know, this might have been what happened. At least this is the way the story goes. But here's the deal this is the important part of this. So they get 72 men, they send them down there, and over the course of 72 days, 72 men over 72 days, so that's 36, pa- they broke them up into pairs, and they each had parts of books and things like that 36 pairs of translators worked tirelessly to finish the translation this is another part where people nowadays kind of go mm, i don't believe you <laughs> you know <laughs> because martin luther once sought to translate the old Te- oh, the new testament into german and it basically took the rest of his life so you know it was not just him but a team of people and they were correcting it long into the future and and so people are kind of like drawing an eyebrow at some of that, but maybe it did happen, who knows. So, 72 days, 72 men, they translate this the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, and the name of the book is called the Septuagint, which the name means 70, and it's abbreviated LXX, the Roman numerals, for 70. So, it's called the Septuagint, it is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So here's the 70-plus men taking 70-plus days to translate the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. Okay, Not only that, but between the years 250 B.C. and 100, somewhere in that range, all the books of the Hebrew Scriptures, not just the Hebrew Scriptures, but many non-biblical Jewish writings, all of them begin to be translated into Greek, or at least many of them begin to be translated into Greek. Okay. So, let's think about what this is doing. So, if we go back to what I said at the very beginning, that human history is a chessboard and the pieces move at the discretion of their Creator. Okay, Why would it be necessary for God to preserve the Jewish religion in Jerusalem and then take the Hebrew Scriptures and translate them into the common language that is spreading rapidly across the world. Why would that be the case? See, when Christ comes and raises from the dead, our thought, our feeling deep down, if we're if we're pressed, is well, yeah, then, then the people started reading the New Testament. Right? No. That took years to develop. What's happening in the early church after Christ ascends and the apostles are teaching, is they have the Old Testament. And they're doing exactly what we're doing on Sunday morning, taking Psalm 49 and demonstrating how this psalm points to Jesus. How Psalm 48 does the same thing, and Psalm 47 before it does the same thing, and and 1 Samuel 8, how this is leading us to Jesus. And they're, they're taking every scripture... And they're pointing it straight to Jesus. And if you look at the sermons in the New Testament that are preached by Peter, that's exactly what he's doing. We were talking about the stoning of Stephen just a minute ago in Acts chapter 7. What does he do? He walks through the Old Testament story and brings it straight to Jesus. You crucified this guy. Peter does the same thing. John does the same thing. Paul does the same thing. They go back into the Old Testament and they go, this is how we know this passage is pointing us to Christ. So that's what they're doing. So what would be the incentive for God to not only preserve the Old Testament Scriptures, preserve the worship of the one true and living God in Jerusalem, and then take the Old Testament Scriptures and translate them into the common language of the day so that everybody around the world could read them? Why do you think that is? Maybe, just maybe, he's paving the road for the gospel to go global. That's exactly what he's doing. Now, how long does it take to move humans? It takes apparently a long time. It, in, my, in my mind, longer than my lifetime, it takes to move all of these pieces into place and get them ready for the coming of the Messiah. But it is evident when you go through the pages of Scripture that's exactly what's happening here. Now, that's one thing that he's doing. Are there a billion other things that he's accomplishing with all of these, all this stuff? undoubtedly, of which I only know a sliver. But the sliver that I can see is pretty impressive of the amount of patience and time and and labor. And while everybody else around here who believes and worships you is going, where are you? You're not working at all. You're not doing anything. I'm mad at you because you're not active. Well, you're not active the way I think you should be active. But God's not you. Over 400 years, he's moving human pieces, including kings. He's bringing them up and taking them down. He's taking language and spreading it around the world. He's moving translations of the Bible and getting it global. So that people can read and understand who who Christ is. This process was fueled by a growing demand for the Scriptures in Greek, from Jews who had moved to other parts of the Mediterranean world and from interested non-Jews who did not know Hebrew. So that's another thing. You've got tribes that are scattered abroad and God is getting His Word to them in the midst of their dispersion. He is. You've heard of the dispersion. Peter even writes to the dispersion. James writes to the dispersion. That's what he's talking about people that are Hellenized, that have been scattered across the Greek Empire, or then it'll be the Roman Empire, scattered abroad, and who revere God, worship God, and he wants them to know about Jesus. That's in the New Testament. But what what is happening now is the Scriptures that they're used to reading, they now don't speak Hebrew, they speak only Greek, and they need the Word of God in their life, and he's getting it to them. So now what's happening as a result of that translation is that anyone in the the world at the time who could read Homer's Odyssey could now also read the Hebrew Scriptures, could read the book of Exodus, could read anything that was written in Hebrew, which is tremendously important. So, what does that then do? Well, the availability of the Hebrew Scriptures in Greek combined with the emergence of the synagogue, which we're going to talk about later, as an alternative to temple worship, made the Jews' faith and worship of, the one, of their one God accessible far beyond Palestine and to many people other than Jews. So one thing that we've got to get to is how this whole synagogue thing comes about. Because where does that come from? I thought they all went to the temple. Well, in the New Testament, we've got synagogues happening. Well, how did, how did that come about? Where's the synagogues coming from? That's not until a little bit later, but the point is the language and the translation of the scriptures into Greek couple that with the decentralization, meaning it's no longer just the singular temple that they're interested in, but now also these synagogues popping up all over the world. Now you've got the whole human race now primed with a common language with the scriptures in their hands and a place to go get answers as to what those scriptures mean just coincidence right all those things just well god really lucked out didn't he sure did uh okay so this also provides a launching point for saul of tarsus to bring the gospel to many places in the mediterranean world so when saul goes out across the mediterranean world And begins spreading the gospel. Do you remember where he starts? (coughs) In the synagogues. So by the time he comes onto the scene, the synagogues are religious places of worship. And where where is the gospel going to take root first? Where is he going to create? Well, either the gospel is going to take root there, or he's going to create a big stink in the town, and either one he's okay with. (laughs) Alright? So he goes in, shares the gospel in the synagogues, and some people in those synagogues come to faith. And sometimes they try to stone him and get him out of the town, and it creates a big stink in the town, and people begin to take notice. So the point is, he's got major points to go to to actually tell the gospel, where there is a hotbed of worship of the one true God, and now he can update them on the good news that's taken place that they might not have known about. Human history. It's incredible when you think about the fact that God is actually paving the way for the Messiah. It's not an accident. Paul tells us even in the New Testament, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. None of this stuff just happened to take place. God didn't just luck out with these details. All of these things He's setting up. He's moving. So then... It's interesting, I think, when we, we talk about God's sovereignty, we're, we're, we're willing to give him a good bit of credit for the things that go on in our lives. But there are times, I think, where we want to get him out of some trouble. And wanna say, but there's a lot of bad things out there too, and God, I guess, didn't know about those things or something. When people ask you, oh, you say God's sovereign, but look at all this stuff that's happening over here. You tell me He's sovereign over that kind of stuff. Wow, wow you know, sinfulness, and uh, you know, you kind of hem-haw around and sort of bashfully look down at the ground. And I don't know how to how to deal with this one. You don't need to be apologetic about that. God is sovereign and is working human history to bring about its conclusion in Christ. And there are people that take part in great sin. And you know what the New Testament authors never do? They never get God out of His sovereignty in in that kind of sin. Peter throws Him right into it. He says, they came together, the Jews, the Romans, and everybody here came together to kill the Son of God and do exactly what God's hand predestined to take place. And we go, "Eh, yeah, but eh, did he though? I mean, like, you know, the New Testament doesn't back away from it. God is moving all of these things. Because how could he bring about all of this to a conclusion in Christ if he didn't do that? So even the people that commit grievous sin are mounting up for themselves on Judgment Day such a tremendous verdict that all of us would shield our eyes to see. Or, such a tremendous testimony of the grace of God that even a sinner such as Saul of Tarsus or Michael Crosswhite of Texas would be forgiven. He can't do that if he's not absolutely and totally sovereign. Don't try to get God out of that kind of stuff. He doesn't try to get himself out of it. Don't you either? Questions? Go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. the odds of all of these things happen to come. It, it's a bit like walking along the beach and saying the sea put together that sandcastle. You know, you, you see it, they're built, and you go, you know, you assume somebody built it, don't you? You know, uh, what are the odds that the sea just kind of threw this, the particles of sand together in the shape of a sandcastle? <laughs> Whether it's creation, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, the coming of Christ, the shaping of history, either God's the luckiest being in the universe or it's planned. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Hmm. yeah he's an excellent climber. Yeah. I grew up watching the Ninja Turtles. It's possible. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. The Ethiopian eunuch bought a <laughs> copy of Isaiah from looks <laughs> over Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. We have a little footnote by what you just said. <laughs> Where, where's the footnote? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, th- certainly when you start reading, I think maybe even with just some of the details that you've got now as you read the book of Acts, you'll start to see some of these little uh, whispers of things that like start to make sense. Again, we talked about, I talked about maybe last week or the week before, uh, the Hellenists that uh, are in Acts 6. They are the widows, they're Hellenists, they're Greek-speaking, and they're uh, they're Jewish people, but they're or they're perhaps come to Christ, but they come to Peter, and they're being left out of the daily distribution by the Hebrews. They're in Jerusalem, and so they're like, you know, and they don't, it seems like they don't speak the language. And so, you know, wh- what do we do now? So the deacons come up, so there's, there's some Hellenists there. Um, there's the Ethiopian eunuch reading a copy of the book of Isaiah. Most likely that copy is not in Hebrew, but in Greek there's another thing that you'll notice. I've mentioned this probably last week was the, uh, when you go through the New Testament, you'll find sometimes in your Bibles it will be in inset. Somebody like a like a um, author will they'll be saying narrator will say something and then they'll have this little inset like a little quote and that there's a little reference normally back to an Old Testament passage. And if you read the New Testament quote and then you go back to the Old Testament passage, sometimes the two are not exactly the same and you go why are they not exactly the same because the New Testament writer is quoting the Septuagint not quoting the Hebrew Bible normally he's not quoting the Hebrew Bible he's quoting the Septuagint he's writing remember in Greek right to Greek speakers it's the common language of the day he's writing Koine Greek so when he goes to copy the scriptures he's going to copy the scriptures they have even though Paul we know in Acts speaks Hebrew he speaks Greek He speaks the languages of the day, but at the same time, he speaks Aramaic, but at the same time, when it comes to writing the scriptures, they write it in Greek. Another part of this that I think is really helpful to think about when it comes to your Bibles, um, God has permitted his word to be translated. And he calls that translation authoritative. So, are there better translations and worse translations? Yes, there are. Are there some that masquerade as translations that are not really translations? Yes, there are. But, even though there's better and worse translations, God has permitted His Word to be translated, so the best translation is the one that you will read. Alright? That being said, we use the English Standard Version because we feel like it's the most accurate and yet still Enables it to be read pretty easily, at least easily enough, and without sacrificing clarity or without sacrificing uh, accuracy. So, but the point is that is not true of other religious texts. So, when you get to Islam or you get to various other religions, to have the Quran translated in without, not in the original Arabic, it is not the authoritative Quran. It has to be in the original Arabic to be the authoritative translation of the Quran, which 1% of this people speak. Yeah. There's like hundreds of dialects of Arabic. So, but if you don't have that translation, it's not the authoritative Quran. You might have it, it might be, you might be able to read it, but it's not the authoritative version. It's, just, it's similar of many other things, but God has allowed His Word to be translated so that it can get to the languages of the people. This is the beauty of the Reformation, is they took the Bible that no one could read, that was read in Latin, that no one could understand, that only the priests could read, and some of them didn't even understand it, and then they make up all these false doctrines, all this kind of stuff. The Reformation comes along, and the first thing they did is translate the Bible into a language that could be understood by the people. So take your copy of the Word and read it. Nothing replaces that. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for its translation. We're grateful for how history bears out that you love us enough, not merely to save us, but then to continue to let us know about it, to remind us of it, to give us a copy of the scriptures in our own language, that is authoritative, that is able to correct and reprove and teach and train in righteousness, even though it's not in its original language, it is still able to do that. How can that be except that you are the author? That's the only way. We know as people who have been changed by the reading and study of your word that it is you working through your word makes it authoritative. So we are grateful for that. We thank you for it. May we not be a people who forget about it, who put it on the table and let it collect dust, but who read it, who seek to understand it, study it because it tells us more about who you are that we might become more like you. And then we can take that and tell other people about it and through the telling of the gospel you save people supernaturally through the proclamation of the gospel so please lord make us into a people who revere your word study it not to puff up our own selves but to conform us into the image of Christ that we might deliver his gospel in word and deed to other people we pray in jesus name amen thanks for listening If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.